God's Word now from 2 Timothy chapter 2, pages 1181 and 1182 in your pew Bible. We see that same movement from suffering unto glory that we just sang of as Paul calls Timothy in suffering for the gospel to remember Jesus. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're beginning at verse 8. The apostle says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. Congregation, if you were to... Just read through this book of of 2 Timothy, maybe in a single sitting, and uh, make note of each mention of of suffering and each mention of the promise of glory. What you'd find is is that those are the the twin themes of this book. As, As Paul, throughout the letter, preaches the gospel and charges Timothy to do the same, he tells him that he can expect suffering. And yet he encourages him with the promise of life, that very same promise that was mentioned in the first verse of the book, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. I just reread through the book this week. I counted about 15, at least 15 times where Paul speaks in one way or another of suffering, and about a dozen times where he mentions the hope of glory in just four short chapters over And over, these themes come up throughout this book. And so as we come now to 2 verse 8, where it says, remember Jesus, we don't want to separate that from from the burden of the book to encourage those who suffer for the gospel not to be surprised by their suffering, but to press on because of the promise of life. That's the burden of, of the whole book. That was the burden of the section that we looked at last week, that the cross comes before the crown, that suffering leads to glory. That's, that's what Paul just hammered home in 2 verses 1 to 7. And now he says, remember Jesus. As you share in suffering, remember his pattern of suffering unto glory. That's how you'll be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Remember back in 2 verse 1, in the beginning of this section, Paul said, as you share in suffering, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And now he's telling us that the way you do that is by verse 8, remembering Jesus. Remember his work, verse 8. Remember the power of his word in verses 9 and 10. And remember his character in verses 11 to 13. That's the charge that Paul gives this morning, both to us as a church, to each of us as individuals, and Jose and Mateo, also to you as you've stood before God's people this morning 
Remember Jesus. Remember his work. Remember his word. And remember his character. First, his work. It's what Paul speaks of in verse 8, where he mentions both the suffering and the glory of the Son of David. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The emphasis is on the glory of the risen Christ. In, In the midst of Timothy's suffering as a good soldier, Paul points him to the glory that awaits him. He points him to the same thing that we just sang of a moment ago. In the midst of, of Timothy's suffering, he points him to the hope of glory. That's what he's just done in those three images that he gave him in verses 1 to 7 of, of the soldier who, who will please the one enlist, who enlisted him, of the athlete who will receive a crown, and of the farmer who will enjoy the first share of the crops. In the midst of present suffering, Paul points Timothy to future glory. And now he he caps it all off by saying, remember Jesus. Yes, remember the farmer. Remember the athlete. But above all, remember the one who died and was raised. Remember that Christ, the offspring of David who suffered, has now been raised in glory. Thus illustrating the principle that death is the pathway to life, that suffering is the gateway to glory, and the cross leads to a crown. Timothy, when you're tempted to avoid pain, when you're tempted, even as as the serpent tempted Christ in the wilderness to, to skip suffering, remember Jesus and be strengthened. When you're opposed, as he he tells him throughout this letter, he will be. And you start to get discouraged, and and maybe you wonder whether whether God isn't letting you suffer because he doesn't approve of your ministry. Remember Jesus and how he suffered first before entering into glory. In fact, that was the pattern already laid before him in the Old Testament. That's what Paul is getting at when he says that Jesus is the offspring of David. Remember how the Old Testament was so clear that that the promised king of David's line must first suffer before then being uh, raised into glory. That's what Jesus told those two confused disciples on the road to Emmaus. When they were so discouraged because of Christ's suffering. And he said, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things before entering into his glory? Don't you believe what the prophets have said? And then he took them on a seven-mile tour of the Old Testament, showing them from all the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning himself, how he must first suffer and then enter into glory. That was the pattern throughout the Old Testament. That was the pattern of the Davidic king chased by Saul nearly unto death, a, a fugitive in the wilderness, later exiled because of his son who sought his throne, but God established him. That's the pattern in the Psalms, both individually and as a book. That's the pattern of First and Second Samuel, suffering unto glory, death before resurrection. And Christ followed in that same pattern of his father David. The Psalms teach us, the life of David teaches us that God's king must first suffer before he's exalted. 
And so Paul now points Timothy, his protege, to that Old Testament truth and says, remember. Timothy, remember what what Eunice and Lois taught you from infancy, from the Old Testament. And don't be surprised by suffering. But rather, be encouraged by the pattern of the son of David, that just as you share in his suffering, you will share in his glory. That same encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy, he he also gives to us. Um, Calvin said that we might have fresh boldness to not falter when we suffer abuse, persecution, or insults of every kind. Although God's church might seem to be almost destroyed, we look upward to behold the glory of God's exalted Son. Knowing that we are partakers of his blessings and he is one with us. Calvin says we must turn to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, knowing that when the head of this body here on earth that suffers was raised in glory, it was to strengthen us so that we might withstand every tribulation. And so, beloved, as you find yourself waiting, as you find yourself suffering, Paul says lift your eyes to the coming glory, to him who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and be strengthened. Knowing that this light and momentary affliction, whatever it may be, will give way to an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. He says, lift your eyes to the coming glory and be strengthened by the exalted splendor of our glorious king. And yet at the same time, he says, don't be naive about the pathway to that glory. But remember his work, how the cross led to the crown, and and that's the pattern for all who follow him. Like Paul, when verse 9 says that this is why he's suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, because he knows that the one he proclaims, the one to whom he's united, once suffered too, but is now raised in glory. And so he's willing to be bound with chains for him as a criminal. And it's interesting, actually, the language that Paul uses to describe himself as a criminal. It might actually be intentionally aligning himself with Jesus, who in John 18 is also called a criminal. The, uh, the CSB, John 18.30, they say, if this man were not a criminal, Pilate, we, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Jesus suffers as a criminal, though innocent. Jesus suffers in the place of one like Barabbas, who deserved to die, while Barabbas, the criminal, goes free. And Paul, by by using this this term, uh, identifying himself as as a criminal, he he is, in some sense, aligning his suffering with that of the one he proclaims. Because of Jesus, he's willing to suffer as a criminal knowing he'll be vindicated later just like the one who was raised in glory. Just like the one whose resurrection was the answer to the cries of those who crucified him and said that God would not save him. The righteous one who suffered for sin and God then vindicated Paul here models for us how to be motivated by remembering Jesus. 
as we remember his work and how he suffered and was then raised, we can be emboldened to, to even be mislabeled a criminal and bound with chains or worse because we know the glory that awaits us. Remember Jesus' work, his death on the cross for your sin and his glorious resurrection and ascension. And then second, remember his word, that even as you share with him in suffering and, and in some cases may even be bound with chains as a criminal, remember that the word of God is not bound, but continues to go forth. That's the second thing that, that Paul reminds us this morning. As we remember Jesus' work and his suffering unto glory in which we share, we remember also the power of his word that goes forth even through our suffering. You understand what, what he's saying? You may be tempted to become discouraged because you are bound in chains if, if the same thing that happens to you happens to me. But the word is going to continue to go forth, so don't be distraught. In fact, not only will the word continue to go forth um, despite our suffering, but but even through our suffering, Paul says. Timothy, be encouraged. The word of God is not bound. That's maybe kind of a surprising way of putting it. Remember the first time uh, that I I read that phrase, the word of God is not bound, What, what exactly is is Paul saying, but he's saying they may be able to lock me up. They may be able to put me in chains, but the gospel, they cannot, for God has ordained that it will go forth. For as we know, this word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not return void, Isaiah 55, but it accomplishes that which God purposes. This word is powerful. This word is the same thing in Genesis chapter 1 that brought the world into being. This word is the same thing that Christ so identifies himself with that in John chapter 1 he's called the word incarnate. Perhaps that's part of why John or uh, Paul in Romans chapter 10 says that, that Christ himself is, is, is present with us in the preaching of the gospel because he has so tied himself to that word. And so this word will continue to march forth unimpeded regardless of whether God's servant is in chains or not. He's saying they cannot stop it because of the inherent power of the word. Think of the the situation in China in the last half of the 20th century where in 1949 all of the Christian missionaries were kicked out under Mao Zedong and the uh, Christians who were there were, were harshly persecuted Many throughout the world predicting that that would be the end of of Christianity in China. Then over the next 30 or 40 years, as the church went underground, it continued to grow and and grow until there were millions upon millions of Christians so that that when things finally opened back up in in the 1980s, the Western world was astounded at how the word had continued to go forth despite the doors that had been closed, the the, uh, missionaries who had been kicked out and the the indigenous leaders there who, who were to proclaim that word who were in chains. The Chinese church in the 20th century is a vivid illustration of the truth of verse 9 that the word of God is not bound. So don't fret or or panic. 
When it seems that various freedoms are being eroded, the word of God is not bound and will continue to go forth as God here says and as he has demonstrated in the history of the church. Not just in China, but all throughout church history. Where we see that not only does God's word go forth despite suffering, but even through suffering. And just think of the book of Acts. Reading through it, I counted some 27 times where, where suffering and, and opposition occur. And yet even in the midst of that, in virtually every chapter, the book of Acts documents the progress of the word. In fact, if you were to sort of outline the book, every major section of the book ends with, with some statement along the lines of, the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to increase. And even in that, that language, it's, it's actually sort of, sort of personified in the same way that it is in 2 Timothy, just as it cannot be bound. So the book of Acts says repeatedly, the word continued to grow. The twin themes of, of the book of Acts are the suffering of God's people and the progress of the word even through that suffering. What Tertullian said of the, the early post-apostolic church was true also in the book of Acts, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He said, the oftener we are mowed down by the Romans, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. That's essentially the same thing that Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that his imprisonment served to advance the gospel. It's what uh, the Lord says in Revelation chapter 12, that the serpent is trampled and the kingdom comes through the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony of those who loved not their lives even unto death. God's plan for the advance of the gospel uh, mirrors the gospel itself. As John Piper has said in his excellent little book, Filling Up the Afflictions, of Christ, he says, voluntary suffering and death is not only the message, but also the method of our mission. When we suffer with Christ in the cause of missions, we display the way that he loved the world, and in our suffering, extend his to the world. Suffering is one of God's intended strategies for the success of his mission. He intends for the affliction of Christ to be presented to the world through the affliction of his people. And again, we, we can look back throughout church history and think of, of different examples of that. You just think of, of how the death of, of Jim Elliot and, and Nate Sane, the Ecuador Five, propelled so many more to go and suffer for the gospel. Or how the willingness of, of more people to, to come to the very place where they were killed spoke to those who slayed them. Or think of the witness of so many in the church's first few centuries who were martyred for the faith and how many were converted through witnessing their deaths. There are well-documented cases of pagan conversions through witnessing the martyrdom of believers. This is part of God's strategy. He not only saves us through the suffering of his son, but he brings that message of salvation through suffering. That's what Paul says in verse 10, that he endures this suffering for the sake of the elect because his suffering will be the means by which they are brought to salvation in Christ with eternal glory. It's really an astounding statement. Let's just look there at verse 
Verse 10, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that... So here we have a purpose statement. What's the reason that he's willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect? That they also might obtain salvation in Christ with eternal glory. And so this is another, another case of, of suffering unto glory. The, the sufferings of God's missionary ambassador leading to the eternal glory of the elect. Not that Paul's sufferings are redemptive like Christ's. But the elect are saved, the preaching of the gospel, and he cannot preach that gospel without suffering for it. And so through his sufferings, others are brought to glory. He's saying the same thing the Scottish missionary John Payton said when he said that seeds of faith and hope were planted not only in tears, but tears of blood. Paul is sowing seeds that will sprout to eternal glory through blood-soaked tears. And it's calling Timothy and us to believe that. It's calling Timothy and us to believe in the power of the word that will go forth, not just despite our suffering, but through it. Because God has so wed the message of the word to its method. He brings about the salvation of the elect through the message of a suffering Savior that is proclaimed by those who share in his suffering. It is also how the doctrine of election doesn't lead to inactivity, but is actually what motivates him to suffer. It's interesting. I think this is the fourth sermon uh, in, in this series. In, in at least three of those, we, we've talked about the doctrine of election. Paul is not shy about bringing that up over and over, and yet it's in a book whose, whose main uh, purpose is, is to motivate Timothy to preach the gospel, to suffer for the gospel. And so Paul doesn't see these two things as, as being at odds. Maybe you've heard the story of uh, William Carey, who's often called the father of, of modern missions as he was considering uh, bringing the gospel to the unreached. As the story goes, there was one older pastor who, who stood up and, and said to him, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. That man's response, the doctrine of election, was, was the opposite of Paul's. Thankfully, Carey sided with Paul and let his convictions about the sovereignty of God in salvation lead him not to sit on his hands in inactivity, but rather to suffer for the gospel, that his suffering might lead to the eternal glory of the nations. That's the same thing Paul is here calling for. Reminding us that God uses means to bring about the salvation of the elect. He uses the power of his word through the suffering of his people. And so he calls us to remember Jesus' work and remember Jesus' word and be strengthened. To remember the power of his word that will not return void. He's calling us this morning as we look around at the state of the world and the state of of, of this nation, and sometimes we might feel hopeless. He's calling us to remember the power of the word that will not return void, that cannot be bound, and remember in whatever suffering the proclamation of the word may bring, or whatever suffering our identifying with with the, the hard truths of God's word might bring, Just as Christ's suffering led to glory, so it is with his disciples. 
And so he says, remember it, Jesus' work. Remember it, Jesus' word. As his word went forth through suffering, he may likewise call you to advance the gospel even to the difficulties you endure. And then lastly, as you do that, Timothy, remember his character. Remember that he's faithful. That's the last thing Paul wants Timothy and us to be strengthened by as we share in suffering for the gospel. Remember Jesus' faithful character. He cannot deny himself. And therefore, this saying is trustworthy, verse 11, that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. That if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. As Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus, he reminds him of this trustworthy saying. When he speaks of of dying with him, in verse 11, that, that refers in the context of, of Paul's argument to, to suffering or, or dying to self as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is, this is not talking about just sort of um, um, the way that Romans chapter 6, as it talks about being buried with Christ, dying with him so that the new man might live. There, there is a general way in which the New Testament sometimes speaks of dying with Christ. But here in the context of Paul's argument, he talks about dying. He's talking about suffering for the gospel and dying to oneself. As we take up our cross and follow Jesus, that's the same thing that he, he speaks of when he says in verse 12, endure. That word endure, if you look back at 2 verse 10, is the same word Paul used, and he said, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. There he was talking about the suffering that he endures. So it is in verse 12. He's saying endure suffering, take up your cross and die, and you will live. Indeed, you will reign. He's reminding him of that same pattern of suffering unto glory, assuring him this saying is trustworthy. God is faithful and will keep his word. Trust him that the road to life is death and the pathway to glory is suffering. That if you take up your cross and follow him, he will not desert you. But just as in Christ's own experience where death led to resurrection and the cross to a crown, so those who die with him will live. Jim Elliott was right when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He understood that suffering with Christ in this life is worth it because of the glory that awaits us where we will reign with him in the age to come. It's easy to just sort of skip over that line that that we will reign with him. But this, beloved, is a glorious truth that we will reign with him in the age to come. Think about what a comfort that is for those who face opposition now. Think about what a comfort that is for the thousands of persecuted Christians who die for their faith. To know that though they are marginalized and despised in this age, just as their cross-bearing king has been exalted, they will be too. And will share in his triumphant universal reign. 
That truth will carry them through hard days. That truth will will carry Timothy through hard days, fixing his eyes on the coming glory, remembering Jesus in his work, remembering Jesus in what he has said in his word, and remembering Jesus in his faithfulness to that word. Paul encourages Timothy to press on and share in suffering with an eye to his faithful Savior who will raise him up. But then even as he encourages him positively with those first two statements in this trustworthy saying, he then also warns him of what will happen if he denies him. And here we, we might remember just a, a few moments ago, we, you know, we, we read this over several weeks, but you could read through this letter in 10 minutes. And so as, as Timothy is reading through this, just about a minute and a half ago at the end of chapter 1, he's mentioned all those in Asia who turned away from him. He's mentioned specifically Phygelus and Hermogenes throughout the rest of the book. He will mention more uh, like Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. Alexander the coppersmith in chapter 4. Paul mentions many who deny the faith. And so as we're reading through this and we come then to these, these negative warnings, Paul's saying, Timothy, if you deny Christ, like those that I just mentioned or those I'll mention again in a moment, and refuse to identify with the cross and share in Christ's suffering, then glory does not await you. But if you deny him, he will deny you. Here he wants him to see that God is faithful not only in mercy, but in judgment. Which I believe is the same thing that Paul is saying in verse 13, where he he carries on this same thought. The the first two lines of of the poem or, or creed that we have here being about God's grace toward those who share in suffering. And then the last two about his judgment toward those who won't. If we are faithless, that is, if we deny him and do not press on in the faith, then he will be faithful in judgment. This reading of the verse as a warning, as opposed to a comfort to us in our unfaithfulness, is consistent with the logic of the passage, makes sense of the balance of the poetry with two lines of positive encouragement balanced by two lines of warning. It's consistent with the context of the book with so many who have denied Paul and and is the the way that that Calvin and Stott and, and Hendrickson took this passage, that faithfulness on God's part in verse 13 means carrying out his threats of judgment. And so Paul here ends with a warning, calling Timothy and calling us to remember Christ's character both in his faithfulness to his promises that those who die with him will live and those who endure with him will reign, but also to his threats. That those who deny him, Matthew ten thirty three, he will deny. He is faithful in both grace and judgment. And so there is a glorious future awaiting those who are faithful to Christ and his gospel, but a sobering warning that God will judge those who shrink back from costly service and deny him, like those in Asia, among whom were Phygelus and Hermogenes. And we need to hear both of these. We need to be encouraged by the hope of glory that we might persevere, but like the warning passages in the book of Hebrews, we also need to be reminded that if we deny him, he will deny us and will be faithful in judgment. God's people need to hear both. Timothy needed to hear this. 
as he might have been tempted to shrink back. And yet at the same time, he was called to share as a good soldier, remembering the suffering son of David who is now risen from the dead, whose pattern of suffering unto glory is also the pattern of those who follow him, advancing his gospel of grace through enduring everything for the sake of the elect. That's what Paul calls Timothy and us to remember. Remember Jesus' work, how he died and was raised? Remember his word, how it will go forth even through the suffering of his people. And remember his character, how he's faithful in both grace and judgment and will grant life to those who take up their cross and follow him, but will deny those who deny him. That's what Paul reminds us in these six verses, encouraging us to persevere in suffering, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, remembering his work, Remembering his word and remembering his character. That's the call of 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 13 on all of us this morning. Before we close, Jose and Mateo, I just want to make a a few applications for you. As Paul calls us to remember Jesus, that, brothers, is the essence of the gospel that we confess. That is the substance of the confession that you've just made. And so even as Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, I I say to you this morning, remember Jesus, who is the essence of the confession that you've just made, who is the heart of the, the system of doctrine to which you've just subscribed and hold fast to him. Treasure him. Be willing to suffer with him, remembering that his path is your path. In fact, that's why in the profession of faith form it, And said that we welcome you not only into the responsibilities and joys, but also the sufferings of the church. The call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer with him. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So be willing to suffer with him, and yet even in the midst of that, trust that he is faithful in both grace and judgment, and do not doubt that the sufferings of this life will be more than repaid by the glory that awaits you. Persevere in the hope of that glory and in the awareness, not only of the hope of glory, but but also of, of the gravity of the warning that Paul gives to those who don't persevere. And this is a warning that he gives to every single one of us, to um, all of the young people who made profession a few weeks ago, to every professing member of the Church of Jesus Christ, to to every child who has had the privilege of, of being baptized and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ. Don't take for granted just because I, I, I made a confession one time that I can just go and live however I want. But these warnings are given to us for a reason. They are one of the means by which we persevere. God wants us to be reminded not only of the glory of the promise of life, but of the gravity of the judgment that will come upon those who deny him. Remember Jesus. Be willing to suffer with him. Trust that he is faithful in both grace and judgment and in light of all those things, persevere. Verse 9, I believe in the power of his word. Zay Mateo believe that this word is living and active and cannot be bound. 
And so because it is so powerful, you, you give yourselves to the study of it, you faithfully attend the preaching of it, even as you were just charged a moment ago, you, you join us together in the proclamation of it, believe in the power of the word. Remember Jesus, remember his work, remember his word, and remember his character. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ and pray that you would help Jose and Mateo and each one of us to remember Jesus. And as we come to his table now in remembrance of him, we pray that by it you would strengthen us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Even as, as through coming to this table, we lift our eyes to the coming glory by tasting the eternal banquet of the age to come. Lord, we pray that you would use this means to strengthen us in our assurance of union with Christ, of which this meal is a token, that we are united to our head. And so even as he who once suffered is now raised in glory, we will be too. For as it is with the head, so it is with the body, as we're reminded in this meal. Strengthen us by it, we pray, to the end that we might persevere in sharing and suffering for Christ's sake, in hope of his coming. Amen.